Welcome to Honoring Traditional Music in Video Game Scores. I want to thank you all for being here. Uh, I'm extremely biased, but I think this is a very interesting topic. It's one that's very near and dear to my heart, and I think everyone's hearts up here. This is an amazing panel um, that I'm honored to have here, so I want to thank them as well. Uh, I'm going to start with introducing them. We'll play a quick video, because talking about music, what did I say? Talking about music is like dancing about writing or something like that. Uh, unfortunately, We'll do, we're doing a lot more talking than listening today, but I think it's an interesting subject. So, um, all the way to the left, my left, uh, I want to introduce Brian D'Olivera. Uh, Brian is an award-winning composer for film, TV, and games. He's a multi-instrumentalist, uh, multi putting it lightly. He's a, he is a multi-multi-instrumentalist with a diverse upbringing uh, in the Caribbean, South America, Europe, and now Canada, where he lives in Montreal. He's the founder and CEO and creative director of La Hacienda Creative in, Mon in Montreal. Um, a full-service music and audio post-production facility, and some of his game credits include Popo and Yo, uh, developed by Minor Minority Media, Little Big Pan Planet 3, developed by Sumo Digital, uh, and Shadow of the Tomb Raider, developed by Eidos Montreal for um, Crystal Dynamics-ish. Uh, next, we have Chad Cannon. Chad is an LA-based composer, uh, orchestrator, and arranger. Born and raised in Salt Lake City, studied music and Japanese at Harvard, uh, and studied composition at Juilliard. Uh, he scored projects for HBO and Netflix, including the Academy Award-winning documentary, American Factory. Um, his most recent documentary, Join or Die, actually premiered this past weekend here at South by Southwest. The directors are right in the back. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations. Um, he also works as an arranger for legendary Japanese composer Joe Hisaishi, which is an amazing achievement that I have yet to grill him about, but I will after this. Uh, and his most recent video game credit, uh, credits are writing additional music for the PlayStation 4 and 5 title Ghost of Tsushima, um, and then co-composing the Iki Island expansion, which came out for the director's cut of that game on the PlayStation 5. Uh, co-composing it with, with composer Bill Hemstapot. Hemstapot. Uh, both games were developed by Sucker Punch. And Uyenga also performed on that. Yes. Thank you for setting me up. Um, next we have Uyanga Bold, uh, who is uh, uh, an unbelievable singer, vocalist, uh, again putting it lightly. Um, Uyanga is an, an internationally acclaimed Mongolian performing artist and multimedia vocalist with countless, literally countless, film, TV, and game credits, including award-winning projects for Disney, Google, Amazon, Marvel, Ubisoft, uh, Burning Man, Harvard, Boston Ballet, Two Steps from Hell, the uh, trailer, epic trailer composer, maybe the founders of epic music, um, and Tencent Games. Um, she's the subject of an entire virtual instrument sample library, which if you're like us and composers and have terabytes of this kind of stuff, this is a good one to buy. Um, made by East West, called Voices of the Empire, uh, incredible library. Um, and some of her game credits, numerous game credits, include League of Legends, Overwatch, uh, Pathless, uh, and of course, Ghost of Tsushima, um, where she worked with Chad on the Iki Island expansion. Um, yes, so that's the four of them. And then me, who am I? Well, uh, my name is McLean Deemer, uh, also a composer for games. I've been in the game industry for 15 years this year, uh, starting as a sound designer, moved into taking over the music for a game called Guild Wars 2, which is a game that I still work on to this day. And I've done some other titles, like um, I started my career working on the Rock Band games, Rock Band 2, the Beatles Rock Band, some other stuff, uh, and uh, more in the works. Uh, go to, yeah, a lot more, a lot more coming this year, but a whole lot of Guild Wars in my past, um, and we'll talk about some of that today. So, 
that's us. Thanks for being here. I want to play a quick video that will, uh, you know, give us a, give you all a sense of of, uh, of the work we do, and then we'll talk about it from there. Uh, I'm always, I don't know, this job requires the type of personality that likes to sit alone in a room for hours and hours and just sort of dwell in your own thoughts. And every time I get to sort of come out of that shell and see what my fellow composers are doing, I'm always just blown away and inspired. So this is these are some amazing people up here. Um, I have a question that I want to start with very broadly that I'll sort of, I'll talk a little bit about my own experience and then I want to just kind of open it up for you all. Um, there's obviously a lot of really necessary conversations happening around diversity and inclusion and representation and we'll address some of that because obviously if you look at me uh, and my little snippet of work from Guild Wars 2 up there, we, we were incorporating Korean music into the score for the game on this last expansion. I'm not Korean. And we'll talk about that uh, a little bit later, but uh, I do think that uh, these conversations about you know authentic representation are important, and that was that was a, a, an incredible journey for me to get to that point where I thought, are we doing this music justice? Um, but I was I was coming at it backwards, right, where I have a decade of working in you know sort of purely Western orchestral fantasy mode, and then I have to figure out how to weave Korean music into it. And I think we all have slightly different versions of that story, but I'm curious was the incorporation of, of traditional culture's music something that you were interested in from the beginning? Is it something that you came at backwards, uh, like I did? Um, or was it all sort of part of your initial plan for your musical journey? So maybe, Brian, you can, you can start. Yeah, actually, for me, it's kind of, actually, I would say it was part of the journey from the very beginning. I, I grew up in a few parts of different parts of the world, and I got exposed to a lot of different cultures, everything from Hindustani music, to Latin music, to uh, yeah, native music, all kinds of different genres and, and ways of approaching and thoughts. So that all kind of accumulated. And then, you know, next thing you know, I'm a teenager making electronic music, making Detroit <laughs> house techno. And I still could play all these instruments. And it just kind of came together uh, from a young age. And it just, it just continued from there. Yeah. Chad? You next. Oh, yes. Yeah, so, yeah, so, what, the, the, one of the reasons I really wanted to have Uyanga here is, is, uh, is she comes from the perspective of a performer, right? So she's often asked to do, I've, I've worked really hard to stamp this word out of my vocabulary, but ethnic vocals, right? Mm -hmm. and, and as a catch-all for anything that's not what we think of as the norm, which is Western and, you know, maybe a white Anglo-Saxon or European culture. Um, if there's that, and then everything else gets labeled as ethnic, which I think is a problem and, and something that we should work to change. But um, Uyanga is an interesting case because on your website, uh, and even some of your YouTube videos, that's how you have to kind of sell yourself because that's sort of the norm of what's expected mm -hmm. for a performer like you. And, and I'm, so I'm really curious about your perspective on that as, you know, you want to work, you want to stay busy, mm -hmm. and you have to kind of work within the system. Hmm. It's an interesting question. It's a really big uh, theme and uh, uh, threads to pull here. Um, and uh, the word that started with the word, right? Ethnic, and what does that mean, right? And uh, what is, how do we label something, right? How do we categorize something without uh, removing the nuance and richness of it, right? How do we not box it into something that's smaller than, than, than what it is, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, in, in, in uh, Hollywood, <laughs> I get often hired to do ethnic wailing, for example. That's a category, right? And uh, 
and uh, yeah, it can describe it, it, just those two words brings up a certain flavor, right? But there's so much culture and richness and different ways that you can approach that, right? From uh, the Asian continent, from the Balkan, from the African side, from uh, the Seoul, uh, Northern and the Southern America. I mean, there's, there's so much richness and depth there. And you can, you know, say, uh, maybe geographically locate, you know, look, kind of pinpoint it. Um, and also as um, 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 someone who has studied many different traditional music and singing, you know, I made it a life's journey to study as much traditional music as I can of all, all the world because at some point they all connect for me. Like if you really listen, you know, and, and especially to the pentatonic scales, you know, there's, there's a lot of common, commonality. And if I can come from that depth, um, I can go beyond the labels uh, and, and embody, just in the singing, you hear a soulfulness and a heart and a spirit that I think lends itself to um, giving breath and life to, to, uh, to a score. Mm. Which you do so beautifully. Yeah, to say the least. Um, my journey was that I, I grew up in Utah in a very Anglo-Saxon, I mean, that's my ancestry, uh, environment. And musically, I was trained as a classical violinist, so all the music I was playing was by white European men. Um, and actually, when I went to study at Harvard, my objective was to become a you know, a classical white, <laughs> like Bach, I love Bach's music, I love Brahms, I love all these great composers, but I, when I was at Harvard, I was introduced to the concept of, you're speaking about the word ethnic, but there's this term ethnomusicology. And at first I was not interested in that, but um, I was sent as a Mormon missionary to Japan. I'm no longer an active Mormon, but at the time I was I kind of lucked out where I got sent. I was sent to southern Japan. I lived there for two years and I fell in love with Japan, learned Japanese. And when I came back to Harvard, I decided I wanted to explore Japanese music more. So I, I applied for some scholarship money to go to Japan for, for my summers. And I studied Okinawan folk and court music. And I, my first piece of music where I tried to do some sort of like drawing from tradition and combining with Western Orchestra was my thesis piece, which was based on, I played the Sanshin, which is an Okinawan banjo, essentially. And I took Okinawan poems and wrote it for singers with a Western chamber orchestra. And that experience was just really fulfilling and, and fun, and I felt like I learned so much just having been immersed in Okinawan music. And it just opened my mind to a, a whole other world of of how, yeah, there's all these amazing music traditions all over the world. Yeah. May I speak a little please, bit? Please, please. Um, since you shared a personal story, I think please, I would love yeah. to share also personal, not just uh, in broad terms. Um, also, part of uh, you know the the working with a culture that's not one's own. I think there's an honoring of paying our dues, right? Mm. Going going to the location, right? Studying deeply a very specific uh, 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 stream of, of, of uh, uh, cultural uh, expression, right? And, and honoring that, infusing that, inviting that in, right? And um, um, 
I, uh, for example, I've, I've, I've went and lived in the jungle for, for a whole month with a, a tribe there, right? Just to study their, 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 their singing, right? Mm. And just, just to be willing to go above and beyond, right? To, to really immerse and then do honor that, right? What is honoring a, a culture? It's, it's, it's a, a, a respecting, naming it, acknowledging it and uh, giving back somehow, right? Mm. Yeah, Chad, I was just gonna say, yes. Uh, I was gonna say, Chad, you have a great quote that sort of distills the essence of this on your website, which is cultural collaboration instead of appropriation, right? Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's a fine line, and it sort of exists on a spectrum. And the spectrum has been, we've been on one end of it for so long, and I think we're trying to you know, do our best to pull it in, to the other side of that. So yeah, Brian, what were you gonna say? I was just gonna add to, uh, to your thoughts. Um, yeah, I, I also take a lot of time to go and spend, uh, you know, go, went to the jungle also, spent a lot of time with shamans. Or if I go to India, uh, study with masters and get up at five in the morning and sing one note for one hour straight and get into a meditation and a trance. And part of it is that, but also just being with the people, being in the culture, breathing the same air, eating the same food and, and spending time. There's, there's an there's a unspoken language that you also, that get, gets into your music and part of the, you know, the, this, it's a fusion of, you know, hearing the words, the, uh, how they go about in their day and the music itself, it's all connected. So it's something that's really important and, and you know, spending that time in, in these places, that's, that's how you, and being with these people is how you can really be, become part of it in a sense. And, and you know, it's not just appropriation, you're actually, taking part in it. Mm -hmm. Can I ask you all, because I, I know my answer to this, which I'll give briefly, but did you, in the, in the course of your journey doing this kind of stuff, did you make any mistakes, right? So when I, when I was, one of the challenges of working on the, that expansion for Guild Wars 2, End of Dragons, where we incorporate the Korean music, is it was all done during COVID. So I was not, I still have never been to Korea, which was a big challenge for me. Um, fortunately, with some help from Chad, I was able to find an incredible network of composers and performers for some of these soloists over there. But in, in the preparation for it, I, you know, I was stuck with YouTube and Wikipedia. Um, and I did what I thought was a sufficient amount of research before writing a couple concept pieces that I then played for the studio who had uh, a, a DEI uh, group uh, within the studio of not just Korean uh, employees, but anyone who is sort of part of the Asian diaspora were sort of welcome to have some input. And we played them this stuff and I was really proud of it. I'm like, oh man, they're gonna love this. And they, you know, we played, I played them what was, I thought would be the main theme and they kind of went, you gotta go back to the drawing board because this is exactly what we talked about not doing, which was Hollywood stereotype of like magical synth pads and then a bamboo flute playing a pentatonic lick over the top of it. And, and I, I just had egg on my face. I'm like, I can't believe, I can't, I can't believe I did that. You know, after talking up a big game about, yo, no, we're gonna be really authentic to it. And then I absolutely wasn't. So, you know, again, part of that was the challenge of coming at it backwards, doing it, not being able to go to the place. So I'm just curious if you have any sort of similar experiences of, of, of really, you know, falling into the tropes and the stereotypes that we're inundated with from Hollywood. I, I actually don't. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think for Ghosts of Tsushima, I was from the beginning asked to, you know, be part of the team because I had done a, a film called Paper Lanterns, which is a story about a man in Hiroshima who discovered that 12 Americans had been killed by their own atomic bomb. 
and this guy had spent his whole life researching these, these prisoners of war who were killed by the atomic bomb, even though he himself was an atomic bomb victim. He was eight years old, walking to school. The bomb went off. He was blown into the water off a bridge and survived because he was in the water. Um, but he spent his life you know, telling the stories of these American soldiers, which was like a very selfless thing for him to do. But for the music for that score, I had, I had decided, yeah, I want to do a score that really represents this man who's really interested in America, but he's Japanese, and so we used traditional Japanese music as well as a Western orchestra. And from the beginning, the idea in my head was, you can't just do it. I mean, you, you admitted what you're saying, like that was a mistake, but the, the classic Hollywood thing is to, you have a Western foundation, and then you just do frosting of, of foreign cultures on top. And I think what I was learning on this Paper Lantern score is it's much better to start from the Japanese performers themselves and then what you're creating is around that and it's more, it, it's more integral to the fabric of the music if you're starting with that rather than like trying to squeeze it in afterwards. And I think for the Ghost of Tsushima score it was very similar where we were often starting with the recording sessions of the, of the Japanese or Mongolian performers and then constructing music around that, so it's so it's more integral from the start. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I don't well, think we answered your question. You but did. I, I mean, because that that was the approach that I landed on eventually, and yeah. some, and somebody put it. Somebody on the DEI committee put it in words that helped me ha have that perspective, which is, we need to figure out the 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 fantasy version of Korea in Guild Wars Two is called Kantha. It's this. It's you know you, there were some pictures of it on the screen. Um, and they said we need to, we need to feel we need to know what Cantha, the Cantha's version of Guild Wars Two music sounds like, not imposing Guild Wars Two music established sound onto Cantha. We have to kind of come at it from the opposite direction. I thought, oh right, it's, you know, I, sometimes you get taught something by somebody else, uh, maybe who's not musical, and that's how you have to think about it in in, in non-musical terms. Um, yeah, so um, I can speak. Oh on yes, that please, a please, bit. please. Um, from the maybe the other side, where uh, I, had, I was once on a on a, on a project where um, the composer said, "Just do your thing. Do you look the way you do? Just do that, you know." <laughs> and I I tried not to take offense, and I was just like, "Okay, uh, you know." And um, and um, yeah, it could have been worded more diplomatically, but I think there's still some tension around the subject, just not just in uh, the scoring of video games industry, but just in in in, in the zeitgeist, right? And um, and I think nowadays we're landing sometimes on on a broad uh, kind of a, a ethnic sound where you can't tell where it's actually coming from. It sounds a little bit just that world sound, you know, they, 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 and, uh, and the safe way is to, to, to use fan fantasy words, right? And just do some ornaments that are borrowing from different cultures. And you hear a little bit of that, um, for example, in the chorus uh, soundtrack. It sounds like a Balkan choir, but not quite. You know, I, I did each um, uh, track individually. I said, you know, sometimes 30 to 100 tracks, you know, to, um, and um, yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, uh, and, and the closest thing I can think of is sometimes, for example, I will sing um, Arabic style, even though I'm not uh, uh, from that region, 
um, although I do practice Sufism very deeply, so uh, there's a very deep connection to it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but some people might say, oh, you're singing you know, in that style, not from that culture, you know, what is your right, you know? And once I had a, someone say, oh, you're singing in Spanish and you're not uh, from that, you know, even though it was my own composed song. So the, there's, there's levels of, 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 it might seem like a mistake to someone, right? Like, like, like egg on my face for not being, but uh, um, at the same time, uh, there's a, um, um, there's deep, deep, deep roots and connections and honoring of the teachers and, uh, 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 and the collaborators, mm -hmm. performers. Yeah, yeah and, I, and I feel a big part of it is the intent. Where you're coming from? It's it's not just like okay, I'm going to do this gig. Let's just throw this on. It's like okay, well, take the time and draw from that. And for me, I, I you know I'll, I'll actually try to learn a you know a new instrument and spend a lot of time with that language and and. Then, you know, when it comes times, when, when I'm in the studio, I'm in a production mode, I actually, I like to say this, the instruments will speak for themselves and they, they play me. I'm just the conduit, I'm just the medium for the, for the music to come out. And that's how I kind of approach it. It's just like, okay, I've done all the groundwork and now it's just let it out and it, it happens. Yeah, was, that kind of leads into, or maybe that answers the question I'm about to ask, but maybe you can elaborate on it further. You know, uh, a big chunk of the clip in that video was of you doing the, the South American and Central American stuff for um, Shadow of the Tomb Raider. But at the beginning, I think that I think well, that was from Papo and Yo. Yeah. So, so in that one, that game takes place in a sort of fantasy, dreamlike mm -hmm. Brazilian favela, right? Yeah. Um, but in that video, you're playing a Cora, which is an African yeah. harp, right? And then that kind of 19th century five-string cello, yeah, viola, da gamba. Uh, viola da gamba, right. Yeah. Um, neither of which I would think are Brazilian instruments. So I'm just curious, you know, when, when, yeah. you're in the, when you're in the creative process, when do you say, this has to be from the, that region that I'm representing, or I'm just gonna grab, this is the right sound, I need this, and yeah. you know, how do you kind of walk that tightrope? Well, this is kind of an interesting one because I, I grew up in Venezuela, you know, I grew up with South American music, I lived in Brazil for a while, I even speak Portuguese really well, played samba for 20-something years. So I took creative license. I'm like, okay, well, you know, South American music doesn't need to be always played with by the same instruments in that same voice. What if I used a broke instrument for the strings and imagined it? You know, I was playing even the Indian sarangis, and but in still in the in the feeling of you know being in in that space. Uh, I, for me, Paponio was my childhood, so I just went in that space and you know watching the huge scene in the Andes Mountains and the music which has come out using all these instruments that are from all over the world, but to me, that's, that felt right, and I think you know, people do enjoy it. Sure, sure. <laughs> so it's, it's uh, yeah, that's another way of cultural connection, you know, it's just being able to just expand upon your own culture, but using other means as well, and other sound textures and, and means of expression with, with all, all that we have available in these days. Yeah. It broadens one's palate, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, what's accessible. You mentioned that uh, the classic Hollywood approach to adding something uh, like an ethnic flavor is to have a classic Western score mm -hmm. with um, flavors and textures that are uh, <laughs> traditional from <laughs> the world. And um, uh, I get asked to do that a lot, you know. They, they, I get sent a classical score maybe with, like, drums and they say just improvise 
right? And so, in that moment, if, if I only stick to Mongolian culture, I feel uh, limited in, because in, I've studied, I have so much to, to give, and it's by now a natural expression of my life's journey, which has been to go as deep as I can to the hardest, uh, you know, musical uh, singing uh, techniques, right, out there, you know. Um, because that's how I'm wired, and that's my curiosity and passion, and that's where I'm the most uh, feel uh, enlivened and inspired by. Three hours of riyaz in the morning, I do that, you know, even when I'm traveling, I do one hour at least, you know, and then waking up early, and you learn something, gain something, and then when, when the time comes to, okay, can you create something out of nothing? You have just this richness that can come through, and then deep listening, Right, uh, and uh, from there, I think uh, something truly moving can come through. And we're all uh, trying to create emotion here, right, to these moving pictures. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, we were uh, last night. The three of us were talking a little bit about something that I I kind of made a connection w with only recently after researching for this panel. Uh, Chad, you had an interesting kind of quote on, on there's a there's an incredible blog entry on Chad's website, which I recommend that you go to about the work that he did researching for Ghosts of Tsushima um, and, and some of his sort of studying in Japan generally. And there's kind of a throwaway line that uh, talking about this idea of, of you know, m cultures moving around and sharing and, and that things aren't, they develop in isolation, but they don't, right? This human history sort of moves very slowly, but everything is all connected, um, which is a cliche, but it is true. Uh, even to the, you know, the simple fact of like, we think of Western, Western music, orchestral music can be condensed to image of someone playing a violin beautifully. Well, you play a violin with a, with a bow that's strung with horsehair. Where did that horsehair come from? Uh, I mean, you know. Well, I mean, it's not for sure, but it's, it's, you know, the Mongol invasions of Europe is the time when you first started seeing <laughs> horsehairs in Western bows. So, yeah. yeah. It comes from yeah. Mongolia. Yeah. And, and uh, probably. even... Probably. Most likely. Mm -hmm. um, but e even um, what we think of as the stereotype of Western orchestral music or the Hollywood sound that we kind of, an idiom that we work in a lot, that sound is based on the fact that in the 1930s, uh, when things were happening in Germany that were maybe not so good, there was a massive exodus of a Jewish population, both composers and performers that landed in Los Angeles. And that big brassy sound that we associate with Hollywood is almost entirely due to that movement of people, um, and then it kind of developed its own sound. So e even what we think of as the, the standard and the stereotype has, has its roots in communication across cultures. And then furthermore, the Western orchestra that we think of as Western, you know, Vienna was kind of the heart of uh, cultural exchange for several centuries, you know, with the Turkish uh, Ottoman Empire on its borders and like symbols in an orchestra, That's, that comes straight from Turkey. Mm. So like, and symbols yeah. were an instrument of war, and it's interesting yeah. how it became this instrument so, of, uh, of, of expression and art. So it's important for us to know the, this cultural history so we have context for what, what we're even calling a Western orchestra mm -hmm. isn't necessarily Western. Sure. And also there are these um, archetypal instruments in every culture, right? Mm -hmm. there's, there's a drums of some kind, there's a, there's a flute of some kind, there's a resonating wooden box of some kind, right? There's the mouth harp in many different cultures. So you can find these roots, right? Uh, and find the commonality and from there uh, access a place of authenticity. 
And also, I think it's the choice of, of notes and even the intonation, like the space between the notes and how it's played. Because I, I don't know if uh, a, a, a lot of people get surprised when I say, like, actually, Western music, for the most part, is actually mo all out of tune, you know, because of the equal temperament. It was a necessity, so you could change keys. But uh, a lot of the feeling of music in a lot of these cultures is, is actually just playing just the right combination and the right in the right interval, and that gives a certain feeling, a certain resonance that is just specific to that. And if you just change it a little, just slightly, it's not the same feeling. Mm -hmm. So being able to do that in a, in a respectful way and, and actually making it work within a, a, a score that we're trying to do these days that still has equal temperament has its tricks. And, and you know, I've been, I've, on my end, I've, I've actually had to sort of engineer and plan it out, and I'll actually, I'm lucky because I'm able to play all, my, all the instruments, even the orchestral instruments myself, so I'll actually bend and, and shape around the, the melodies that I'm creating to make sure that it's, it's within this, this you know, specific scale and, and, the, and just the right you know, mathematical <laughs> intervals that you get those, these resonances. Uh, great. Uh, I have a specific question for you, Uyanga. You've been so eloquent so far, so I hope you haven't answered this. Yeah. But um, <laughs> so, you, one of the most recent things you've done for games, at least, is a, is a game called *The Pathless* with uh, composer Austin Wintery, who's uh, a luminary in the in the game audio and game music field. Um, and it's an amazing score and an amazing game uh, that you should check out if you haven't yet. If you play games, and you should. Um, so. I, th I think, correct me if I'm wrong, on that score, that's, that's a, you know, a kind of mix of many, many different cultures, but Austin is very good about kind of doing what we're talking about, approaching them with intent and research and all that. So to me, uh, again, correct me if I'm wrong, that seems like the first one where you were sort of allowed to do specifically Mongolian vocals and, and even sing a song in Mongolian, or is it, is yes, it in Russian? Yes, it's okay. Mongolian. Yeah. So how did, how, how did that collaboration work with him? Um. He approached me with um, uh, uh, he, this idea of wanting to create a Mongolian song, right? And this archetype of the, uh, the um, warrior woman with the, with the hawk and the hunter, huntress, right? Um, is a, is a, to connect with that. And um, uh, he asked to do a Mongolian translation. He asked me to do a Mongolian translation of these lyrics that he had, you know. And um, uh, I translated that, you know, checked in with my grandma just in case. <laughs> um, so she gets the credit too. And um, uh, so we went from there, and, and we went back and forth. Does this sound right musically? Is this the right accent for it? You know, so uh, the first song you heard in the reel, that's uh, me doing a live version, or without an orchestra, so to speak, for, uh, was it GDC? Something like that, mm. yeah. Um, um, and so it, it was a, it felt really, uh, uh, good to be able to infuse actual Mongolian words, right? Mm. And, and actually uh, uh, honor the culture in that way. So he, I, I found his approach very uh, uh, refined. Did you have to correct him on anything? Did he, did he approach you with, hey, here's what I was thinking of, or here's the key, or here's the tempo, or whatever? And he said, well, that's not really this or that, or if we tried it this way. Because I know he can be very 
flexible in that regard. Yeah, we went back and forth in, in, in our in mm -hmm. process, and he would ask me, is this the right approach? And, and uh, But he has such a good ear and such a good feel, and it was a very seamless process. Yeah, mm -hmm. great. Um, Chad, can you talk a little bit about how you got involved? I mean, you did this kind of about Ghost of Tsushima, the, the initial game, and then how you came to kind of compose for the expansion, and did you try to do it differently, you know, now that you were sort of in charge for that little chunk? Yeah, so I mentioned that film Paper Lanterns, and that was the score that some of the Sony PlayStation people had heard, because they had gone out into the world to look for people who had worked with Japanese musicians before, and they found that score, and they invited me to be part of the team, and initially they had paired me with a Japanese composer named Shigeru Umebayashi, who's a you know, he's in his 70s, I think. He's been composing film scores in Asia for a really long time. And, and uh, so they paired me with him as his orchestrator to help him, you know, take his Japanese aesthetic and, and like, make it younger and modern, you know, with contemporary orchestras, you know, Hollywood-style writing. Zhuzh it up. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that collaboration was awesome. I really commend the Sony... PlayStation producers because they were willing to do the thing which is hard, which is that we actually went to Tokyo, found musicians, and spent you know a lot of time and money recording in Tokyo. Most Hollywood producers would want to just do the easy thing of find find local people, bring them to the studio, and just do it there and like get it done, you know. But Sony really planned far ahead to get to reach out and and. Uh, I had really encouraged the team to find, so a little explanation of the game. It's set in the 1200s in Japan on an island called Tsushima at the time of the Mongolian invasions of Japan, which actually failed. Um, because they, of the weather. Because of the weather, yeah. <laughs> we have this, this word kamikaze, kamikaze, which is the divine wind, and that word comes from this, this uh, invasion of Japan where the, the, the typhoon came and wiped out the Mongolian fleet. Um, and I felt that this game really needed Mongolian or Central Asian voices to, you know, harken back to the, to the, to the Genghis Khan and the, the invaders. Because <laughs> if it, they really wanted it to be purely a Japanese game, and I was thinking, well, half your characters are Mongolian. I feel like you should maybe acknowledge that musically. Mm -hmm. So we, we've found quite a few Mongolian performers to join us on the score, including Uyanga, who I think he performed on the Legends mm -hmm, section, which was co all composed by Bill Hemstapa. Yeah. The Legends is like the multiplayer online version of Tsushima, and Uyanga's voice is amazing on there. Um, but yeah, on the expansion, we had a new character who was called the Eagle, and she's like a, a shaman from Mongolia who comes as a war leader, and she uses her her mystical powers to sort of like, I don't know, she basically drugs the, the main character and has them have hallucinations. So she's very, um, very powerful in a different way than, than the main villain on, on the main island of Tsushima, who's just like a big Mongolian guy who's scary, yeah. right? Yeah, very scary. Um, so we, we leaned into the psych psychological elements of that and, and we found a, a Mongolian throat singer in Beijing who brought I mean, Uyanga should talk about this, not me, but like, from what I had understood, it was like less common to have female throat singing. It's usually like a man's yeah. thing. Am I right about yes. that? And so it's really cool when you have a, 
a woman who can like do that and is sort of like bucking their own tradition in, in, by being a woman who does throat singing. And it's such an amazing sound. And, and I know Uyanga also does, does this style of singing, but. Was the Beijing throat singer a woman? It was, yeah. Wow, that's so rare, maybe like a handful. Of yeah, people. and it was, and the game developers really liked that concept because it went with this woman character in the game who's like also being, you know, bucking the, the gender roles by being a war leader in the game. So, um, so yeah, that was. It's not just a, 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 a gender role, it's that, and it's physically, we don't have an, Adam's apple, and there are certain things that we're unable to do, and to be able to do the, the deeper, uh, deeper throat singing, it's, it's extremely uh, difficult, you gotta yeah. access it. But it's such a cool least. sound. It's and beautiful. Yeah. Amazing, but um, I, I probably went off topic. But. No, no, that was, that was great. Um, oh, okay. A follow-up then about the Iki Island stuff. So, so since you you came in more as a consultant and a and a guide for the first for the core game, but then for the Iki Island expansion, you know, then you became one of the co-composers. And so, was did you see that as an opportunity to, you know, bring more authenticity in, or or were you trying to stick with what had already been established? I mean, I think yes, but I had also pushed them on the main game to like to include the authenticity. Mm. Um, we had a Tuvan throat singer. He's not Mongolian, but he's he's from Tuva, which borders Mongolia in in Russia, and it's sort of a semi-autonomous part of Russia, and it's very much part of the same, you know, Genghis Khan history. And and I mean, Uyanga should be the one talking about this, not me. But um, so I felt like we were on the right track as like a team of composers. There was also another composer named Ilanish Carey who had written the main theme for the game, and he was in London and. Um, I don't know, I think for the Iki Island expansion, the production team just wanted to keep it more in-house because my co-composer on that was a guy named Bill Hemstapa, who's a Thai composer who was working in-house at Sony and it just made everything simpler to keep as many people as possible in-house. AKA cheaper. <laughs> yes. And just less, less complicated with the communication between different countries sure, and sure. stuff. But um, yeah, it was a great opportunity to, to also contribute, you know, original composing to the game. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do want to leave some time for questions, but I, I have one more for you, Brian, and then one for everybody yeah. as a kind of summary. Yeah. So uh, I'm curious about Popo and Yo is, is the first game that you worked on that I was aware of. It's probably not the first game that you worked on, but I, I'm curious how they approached, how, how they found you. Because um, I know Canada ha does a thing where they like, speaking of keeping things in-house, if, if there's a game developed in Canada, yeah. they like to have as many Canadians working on as possible. But did, so did, did you pitch to them or did they Actually, approach you? Um, no, I, I, it, was, it just happened by chance. And it was the first game that I ever worked on, actually. Um, I met the creator, uh, Vander Caballero, uh, just randomly. And we had this connection right away. And he just like, he's like, hey, I got this little game I want to show you. He showed me a little prototype. And I'm like, OK, yeah, this, I'm, I'm down for this. And then he, he was, he, First thing, which actually made me really fall in love with the genre, he was, uh, he was like, you know, with games, I, I don't want you to be just doing something with this game. I, I want you to do you, like, be Brian, tell your story within, within the story that we're telling. So he left it fully open for me. Yeah. So in a sense, I, I, got, I got to relive my old childhood creating the soundtrack. And I 
went through all of the the sort of you know, the trials and tribulations and the pain that, that and and beautiful moments also that I lived uh, grow, growing up in the Andes Mountains. Uh, but I got to sort of re-express it and create this musical world that this little child and, and this you know his monster friend tra you know traversed also and 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 you you play through it as well. So I was very lucky that way. Um, and then that started a whole trend in a sense for for me or uh, because. Uh, when, I, when people come to me for, for soundtracks, they know that I have a very specific approach and a sound, and I'm going to do what I do. And I'm not really just trying to just, you know, they're not coming here, hey, can you copy, you know, the style, do this kind of a song? They're just like, okay, Brian, what can you do with this? These are the elements. And in, in a sense, I, I go in there and I create a musical world, and I really take the time, uh, sometimes even years. Um, for example, with Shadow of the Tomb Raider, it was, uh, Tomb Raider, it was over four years. And I went to Mexico, spent months actually researching, going to institutes, listening to field recordings, spending time with masters. I even brought back one of my pre-Hispanic master teachers to Canada and we performed secretly actually the music for a month straight, almost every day, just to really internalize it. And then we did the soundtrack. We actually recorded it in a very quick manner. So that's it's kind of a... I, I try to build my my sort of production and musical life, musical productions into into my lifestyle and and because it's all just kind of connected as one thing. It's it's just how I live. <laughs> yeah. Great. Well, that uh, that maybe touches on the sort of summary topic, so that you can keep your answers brief. But um, <laughs> is there you know just broadly speaking to if there's composers in the room or in the ether, um, which I hope we're not all pitching on the same jobs, but. Uh, <laughs> Is there advice you might give to an approach to doing this, you know, with intent, with authenticity? Because, in, in my opinion, uh, how do I how do I want to say this? Music is music is communication, right? It's always been about communication, whether it's been about celebrating joy or something ceremonial. The, the essence, of the, the reason we even make music is because we have a need to express and communicate in a way that words or action, physical actions don't don't aren't sufficient for. So what does that mean? Well, we need to communicate more, more than ever, I would say, in this world. Um, and so music is such a beautiful way to break down barriers rather than stratify things or codify things. So um, is there sort of a, just a general piece of advice you might have it, to approach this you know, with intent and respect? Yes. Um, take the time to, to internalize it. I think that's kind of been the overall subject and, and really really understand uh, where the music's coming from in, in as many senses and as many ways. Uh, the, the human story, the, the life stories of, of, of these people that are making the music, if you can, you know, take the time to study, listen, listen to it. Sometimes I would even do things where, like uh, we were just chatting earlier, I would sleep with the music and, you know, let the, let the unconscious also uh, you know, absorb and, and you know, I, I remember this one time that I had to do Baroque music in, in a very specific style and within two months I, I just slept with it and then after that I could just play it and it just kind of came out naturally, so. That doesn't work for everybody, by the way. Just, that's not some secret that, that we're all keeping. That's his secret. It's not a secret. It's, uh, yeah, we're, we're talking about it now. Yeah, yeah. Um, the other thing too is, is uh, don't limit yourself. Uh, it sounds simple, but uh, it, it seems to be a thing. You know, we naturally will go, oh, I can't do this. I can't play this instrument. I can't learn this because this is way too complicated. You might surprise yourself. Just even by trying uh, just a bit, you, you're actually going to go quite a bit. You, you'll, you'll be able to do a lot more than you even thought you were pos it was possible to do. Great. 
Yeah. Uh, I guess my thought would be to really consider the power dynamics of what you're doing. Uh, so this is mainly advice for myself as a white, you know, part of the dominant culture in the U.S. is Caucasian. And to be careful when you're dealing with cross-cultural exchange that has a, level, a history of power dynamics. So in the U.S. that would probably mean, you know, if we're talking, the classic example would be Elvis who became famous because he appropriated songs from black musicians and they didn't get credit or didn't get the millions of dollars that he got. And I think in a, you just have to really consider, like for example, if you were a Chinese composer in modern day China, and you know China has hundreds of ethnic groups that live around, or indigenous people that live around them, and you're borrowing from say like a Miao tribe and you're, you're you know, if you're the dominant culture and you're borrowing stuff from the, the minority culture that's been historically oppressed and all that, you just have to really be careful about how that's being done and make sure that the people that you're collaborating with get credit, they get paid properly for what they've done, contributed to the project. And I think ultimately it's most important to bring their creative voices to the table so that it's not you making all the creative decisions, you're including them as part of that. So yeah. I think that's, that's probably the thing I would, I myself am always trying to be thinking more about. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I'd like to pull that thread of uh, uh, giving uh, credit, right? Where credit is uh, due, and, and even if the project, you know, some of the more indie games might not have that much budget, at least you can give the, the credit. And I can't tell you how many times, so many scores, I would uh, improvise vocals, but the composer would get the credit, right? And, and financially also, you know, I would get just an upfront work for hire is, is a term that means that the rights go towards the, uh, that I just uh, renounce my rights to the creative uh, output that I have just done. And it's a bit disheartening. And sometimes I'll get, I'll have to perform a score and it says, written by so-and-so, but <laughs> I actually improvised that, you know? And so um, pulling that thread of giving credit where credit is due, is, um, is beautiful and to see how we can give back to the communities and cultures that we are um, um, in some ways borrowing from but also working with, right? And how to shine light to that, right? Uh, um, and, and maybe include uh, the, the, the uh, soloists, for example, right? In the behind the scenes, right? And, 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 and you know, in the blog posts, talk about the culture and, and have it a way of, a of using it as a platform for greater understanding of the diversity and richness of, of, of the culture that it's coming from. Yeah, I think one practical way we can do that as composers is include these people on the cue sheet so that anytime this is broadcast, a percentage of those royalties are also being shared. Yeah. That's something I try to do too, where, mm -hmm. where I have control. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I don't have too much to add to that other than to say, yes, it's, it's about coming to the culture rather than pulling it towards you is really, the, that's, the, that's the way I frame mm -hmm. it, right? Um, yeah. So uh, if, if you could, the, sure, some questions. And then the, there's, we have a slide that has our, if you want to learn more about us, um, we have very easily Googleable names, all four of us actually. So there's probably only one of each of us on, on the internet. But uh, 
You can find us at those places, and I want to thank you all for coming. So if you have any questions, please uh, ask them now. And I think we have a microphone for you. Eventually. I think they... They probably just shout. Yeah, they just shout. We're good listeners. We're professional listeners. Uh, yes. very specific answer for this because I came up again. First of all, you should buy Uyanga's sample library. Hope, do you, I, hope, I hope she gets some royalties from that. Um, but uh, with, with specifically with this Korean thing, this was something that I came up against. There's a feedback loop that happens in this industry, which is in Western culture, let's just say East Asia, right? There's three major East Asian countries, China, Japan, Korea, um, broadly speaking. Chinese culture, Japanese culture have been well appropriated into Western pop culture. In, in good ways and bad ways. Korean culture, for a lot of different reasons, which we don't have time to get into, uh, ha has not, right? And so when it came time to write this stuff, there's no, there are no Korean sample libraries for those instruments. And they are different. They sound different. They're played differently. There's different idiomatic stuff. And I had part of my process writing that music was spending time learning how to bend these Chinese and Japanese sample libraries to my will. And, and, get, and now I'm actually pretty good at it. But, uh, but you know, this is, this is uh, something that I would like to do with my and sort of entrepreneurial spiritism. Like, there is, there is a market here for this, and no one is serving it. Um, but it's because maybe they don't sell, right? But I'm, I'm hoping that because this is this kind of unknown culture that we're doing our best to spread in, in the West, that maybe, maybe people who make these things will see dollar signs, uh, I hope. And then the fallout from that being is the, this art and culture, which I think is so beautiful, now gets to become more sort of part of the norm. Um, but for many other cultures, they are well represented uh, in sample libraries, and, and, and they are, they, there's some incredible stuff out there. Um, Uyanga worked on the, uh, she did some work on the Mulan, the live action Mulan uh, movie a couple years ago. And the composer for that was James no, Newton. Harry Gregson. Harry, Harry Gregson Williams. And he is very successful, has a lot of money, so he put together a custom sample library of Chinese instruments. Um, and then the movie came out, and then he sold it, and it was sort of a cross-marketing promotional synergy. But I used, I, had, I used a lot of those on the Korean stuff just because it was the most recent and most kind of modern uh, example of those things. So anyway, uh, they're out there, and, and they are amazing, but there could be more, and there could be better ones. I, I do want to just say one thing about your comment that you don't have access to these people. I actually would say you, you do. You just find them on YouTube and email them and say, hey, would you be willing to record something remotely? And especially since COVID, like everybody has stuff at home. Everybody has a microphone set up now. And, and, <laughs> and it's easier than ever to collect. And add to that, actually, if you do do that and you're mocking something up, take the time to learn about how the instrument actually works because usually it's sampled and you, know, you might change keys and all this stuff but it actually won't work when they try to play it in the instrument. <laughs> I've experienced that myself, so yeah. <laughs> be aware of that. Uh, yes, sorry.
That's a, that's a can of worms. I, ha I have like everything. Eventually you just end up having everything mm -hmm. because they all kind of do one thing differently or they do one thing really well. But the East-West Composer Cloud is probably the best, it's the best sounding and best value I think when you're starting out because the libraries are a little old but they're still recorded and programmed incredibly mm -hmm. well and you, it's a monthly subscription. But and you get Uyanga on it too. And you'd get Uyanga's sample library in that one. Um, but yeah, the, those, I, those that would be my advice because um, you, you know, there's, there's a certain standard that people expect in terms of production quality um, that some of the cheaper or free libraries don't quite get to and most people you're playing some of the stuff for if you're trying to pitch to directors or audio directors at, at, at game studios, they don't have the musical imagination to hear through uh, maybe a mock-up that's not as well produced as something with more expensive libraries. I think so. And start with strings. I mean, if you're doing orchestral writing, the best you want to get the best sounding strings, and then everything else can be just bury it in reverb. That's that's what I do. Yeah, I um, I actually don't use a lot of sample libraries, but I actually create my own sample libraries. So uh, I've got my own company called not to prom shamelessly promote, but uh, Mantra.io, M-N-T-R-A.io. Um, but it's basically an expansion of sort of the instruments that that I that I play because they're ultrasonically sampled, and then you can just kind of create your own textures from, the, from them and expand. So, yeah. So I, think, I think we have time for one more, and then I'm, we'll, we'll just go out there. I'm happy to answer, or I'm sure we're all happy to answer any other questions. But uh, yeah, sorry, you had your hand raised at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, yes to all of that. I mean, I, I also, when they first approached me, I didn't know anything about the game. It was a well-kept secret until they made announcements of, you know, Game Developers Conference and some of the other game conferences. But, um, yeah, I had gone to Japan specifically to look into music from that region within Japan. I mean, Japan has the benefit, maybe, of being a pretty unified culture, at least from the Edo period on, it was like pretty unified. There was this, you know, there's set ensembles that are pretty traditional, but, but if you go back in history, you know, each region had its own character and, and musically as well. Um, and I speak Japanese, so I was able to like ask people and find, you know, the local specialists in, in that part of Japan to help educate me about that. But, um, yeah, I think it's a, it's a challenging question. You really do need to find the right people. I think the more specific you can be, the better. And so I always try to you know, learn about a specific geographic area and what, what happened there and why the culture in that region is different from what's in Tokyo. And you know, so more specific is better. And then just making friends with these people. You know, they're human beings that are creating music as well. And so we bond through our music, you know, our musicianship and you just try to learn from them and then hopefully they'll be interested in joining your project. I don't know. 
Yeah, and uh, to add to that, um, I had a, a kind of a revelation 20 years ago. I read a book called uh, you know, On Mastery, and one of the main, main points was to always find the best mastery you could find there. So, yeah, I, I, same, same as you, I, I, you know, I, I'll do a lot of research. I'll contact people well ahead of time, and I'll try to find just the, the best sort of authority and, and real person that, that's doing this and spend, spend a lot of time with them, you know, just make music with them. And even at a certain point, I even like to like go and actually learn how to make the instruments if you, if you can, you know. This is all stuff that for me is that, that like that's what I live for. So <laughs> I just work it into my job. So. And to answer your question also, both, you know, in my hobby, what I do in my free time is to seek out these things because I know it's going to be used at some point and, and it has been every single uh, excursion, trip, cultural exchange, residency, all of it has uh, been asked for. Someone will always say, oh, can you, can you sing in French one day, the next day I'm singing um, Bulgarian style, the next day I'm doing Mongolian, the next day I'm Indian, and then the next day I have it. So, you know, and, and being able to do that is, is what keeps you employed. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, can I just add one more thing? Sure. Which is, I like to try to imagine what I would, if I were in their shoes, how I would like that experience to be. Like, uh -huh. Yeah, you know, I'm from, the, I'm from the Mountain West, which is like cowboy country, essentially, right? And like picturing, you know, if some Japanese game developer came to me and was like, we have a cowboy game, what, who, would, who would, can you help us put together a cowboy? You know, and like, I don't know, I'm not a cowboy at all, and so it would feel weird if they had come to me specifically for cowboy stuff. And you have to remember that like, even if the composer's Japanese, they might not necessarily be familiar with Japanese traditional music. Like that's not always a thing. Mm -hmm. I've used that exact analogy and, and had that conversation. I should say on the Korean stuff, we, we, we brought in Korean composers specifically for that reason. And they were like, well, we, we're not experts at this stuff either. We're, it's through osmosis, we're closer to it. But you know, if, if, I, if they came to me and I said, I've said that, like if you came to me for 19th century cowboy music, you must be an expert, right? I said, no, not, not at all. Yeah, so it's just a useful exercise in humility to like flip the flip the situation yeah. and try to be empathetic to what it feels like for them. So, yeah, great. Well, I think that is all we have time for and more. But please, uh, if you have more questions, happy to answer them out in the hallway. And, and thank you so much for coming. Thanks. Thank you. Should we do